Welcome back to Hand on the Line Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Boggs. This is episode three. Things are coming along, getting some good feedback. Got, got a little more uploads this week. Um, getting some DMs. I a couple DMs. By a couple, I mean two DMs asking some questions. I'm more than happy, more than happy to answer those. Working on some lighting, messing with the mic, this put this bigger thing in there, maybe correct some the sound. This is even more intimidating than what I had in my face before. But Coming along slowly but surely. After all, the Inland Empire wasn't built in a day. We're getting there. Before I get into O-line, once again, I'm not really, I'm not at all trying to do content. I actually despise doing content in my personal evolution, my professional evolution, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I want to get into some current events. Um, some things flooded my Twitter the last week. I wasn't able to film as many episodes as I wanted to this week. My mom was in town and made things a little challenging, but overall, a good time. Kids were happy. First thing I want to talk about was Sha'Carri Richardson. For starters, I'm not a weed guy. I went to Humboldt State University. It's the weed capital of the world. That's probably the only thing they got going for them, in my opinion, until they bring back football. Once they bring back football, I'll change my stance. But weed capital of the world, I don't smoke. Not into it. Most of my family does. It's their thing. It's your prerogative. My stance on the weed thing is I'm very anti-prohibition. Probably very, I'm anti-prohibition with all drugs. That's a whole other story. And I'm very nuanced. That's the N-word I always use. But especially with weed, I'm very anti-prohibition. I'm not even into the argument of, oh, it's a medicinal man. Like, I got a brother. He recently quit, but he smoked every day for 20 years. I don't want to hear that it's medicinal. Like, what were you trying to cure for the last 20 years? It just finally cured? No, I don't look at it that way. I just think we should be able to do what we want, and if there's consequences, we got to own up to them. And if we could drink, smoke cigarettes, you know, notice we always call it alcohol, tobacco, and drugs. That's BS. They're all drugs. It's a substance that kind of just perpetuates the stigma of marijuana. You know, I mean, there's a shame that comes along with it. I think overall the country is changing towards it. There's a little less stigma around surrounded it. And I'm not trying to make this a weed episode. Uh, I just want to say I appreciated the way Shakari handled the situation. I thought that was a beast way of doing things, complete pro. And I love when athletes can handle things, situations better than let's just say the rest of society, because it shows the things and lessons we learn from athletics are actually showing up and carrying over to real life. I mean, people are outraged, which is a good thing when you look at that stigma attached to cannabis. Clearly, it's fading, but people are outraged, and she just handled this thing like a boss. She went up and said, she tweeted, I'm, I'm human. Like, that's saying, hey, I, I, my bad, guys. I messed up. I'm human. And that's, like, part of that athletic lesson, like that accountability. A lot of things with athletics, uh, with athletics is you're vulnerable. You show up anyways. You put yourself out there, and you're accountable. And, like, in team sports, you're – even when it's not your fault, in team sports, you, you'd want to come off as accountable because it's the right thing to do because, you know, a good leader on a, in a team sport – they're not blaming people. And then when you look at track, especially in the Olympics, at least my perspective, I could be corrected by 
uh, track people, but I look at it as a team sport. Even, even you know, you represent your country. Even if you got a beef with your country right now, which I'm completely fine with, um, you still want all your teammates and the people on this side to to, to ball out to get the gold. And you know, we're losing that opportunity to her taking that gold home. But she handled this like a complete boss, and I respect that. And that's getting lost, in my opinion, in this whole argument of it's a performance enhancer or it's not a performance enhancer, it's not going to make you faster. Yeah, true. It's not going to make you run faster. That's crazy. And then the idea, and then, you know, I didn't, I'm not so well-read in this. Most of my news was some ridiculous Emmanuel Acho tweet where he was saying something about javelin throwers. We don't. We wouldn't want them high. I think he was maybe alluding to someone being high and perhaps killing somebody. I don't think he understood, you know, it wasn't like she lit up, smoked a bowl right before the race. You know, it could have been in her system from a day or, you know, even longer prior. But, and if I'm wrong, don't kill me. Don't cancel me. But at the end of the day, you know, she handled it the way you would want a good leader, a great leader in any sport to handle that. She took accountability. She apologized. And I hope, and then this is the interesting thing, you know, Olympics are postponed for a year. I, I'm assuming that it'll go the next time they do it, it'll be 2024. So she's got three years instead of four years to come back. And first off, hopefully she smokes the relay, goes out there in the relay, has her 30-day suspension, goes in the relay and dominates it with her four t- other three teammates, and they bring home some gold. And in three years, she comes back, and maybe she's the catalyst to, you know, really remove this stigma of cannabis. And when she runs it in three years – Wada or Usada is no longer testing for cannabis with their the Olympic athletes, and she goes and she could be high as a kite, and she goes and breaks a record and gets the gold in three years. I would love to see that. That is like the ideal story for me, and she could be the catalyst to not only within sports really remove the stigma, but even at a societal level. Okay, but at the end of the day, as athletes, you know we have rules that we have to live by, and unfortunately, some of the rules are stupid. And you have to, you have to abide by them. You know, at every level, um, I, I don't know. I could list a, a ton from college, NFL, high school that I, I thought were dumb. And for the most part, you know, maybe I walked on the ledge of some of these rules, but you, you gotta follow them because you risk something like this happening. And she was fully accountable for that. Much respect, much respect. I, it's unfortunate that this is this is one of those stupid rules. Uh, just misunderstood, stigmatized things. Uh, just unfortunate overall. But she handled this like a boss. Man, I hats off to her. Much respect for the way she handled it. Get this gold in this relay and come back in three years and really run it. And, and hopefully by that time, you know, if you the, the weak thing's not even a thought. And 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 I know, like, if you look at it from a societal standpoint, I went to. It had to have been the, one of the most progressive colleges in the country. Uh, very liberal, very social justice, loaded with hippies, lots of drugs. I'm talking about the weed capital of the United States. Uh, you, 420, that, that thing was crazy. Like the actual data, 420, insane. You couldn't go to a, you could just be in the vicinity of the county 
and you just smelled the smoke. And I remember at, when I was in college, Michael Phelps, he tested positive for weed. And I think he got a suspension. I'm not really sure. And he was getting torn apart by, you know, the faculty at my college. He was getting torn apart by athletes. Not all athletes. I'd say the basketball team didn't. Uh, the skilled players in football didn't. But, but, I mean, like, a lot of football players were, like, disappointed in him. And then I remember faculty talking about it, which was crazy. My mom, her stance was, he just won all these medals. Let him smoke a bowl. I thought I thought that was the right way of looking at it. I remember Subway, he had uh, advertisements. Michael Phelps had the advertisement at Subway, and we used to eat there every day. And there was a bunch of, you know, backlash towards Michael Phelps then. And now it's the opposite. I mean, overall... I'd say most people are outraged that this is happening. So the stigma's changing, you know? What's it been? 10, 12 years, 13 years, I guess it would be an odd number now because of uh, COVID. But things are changing. And overall, hats off to her. Much respect for handling it like this. Handling it much more maturely than uh, Twitter. But that's not a surprise, though. I love seeing athletes that really kind of embrace what sports give us. And being able to exemplify that in the real world. Uh, next thing that came up was the NIL with college athletes. And I have to admit, I had no clue what that stood for. I kept thinking it was National Letter of Intent. NIL, so National Intent Letter. I kept reading it. I'm very out of the loop. I was a D2 football player. I don't really know everything that's going on with the college football, but... I saw a lot of outrage, and I saw a lot of support. So I was like, oh, better click on some things, read some stories, and I see that athletes are going to get, they can receive endorsements for their name, image, and likeness, and I am so excited for that. That is great news to me. And this is coming from a former college athlete that would have not been a benefactor of this at all at Humboldt State. It's not like people were lining up wanting to help the D2 athlete from this stupid college called Humboldt State uh, to endorse their products and stuff with our name, image, and likeness. It wasn't happening. Maybe maybe the Oriental Buffet would have threw us a bone. And do not cancel on that. That is the name of the place. I'm not saying a racist term. Look it up, Arcata, California. The Asian-style buffet there was called Oriental Buffet, and it was not owned by white people. It's owned by Asians. I'm just throwing that out there just in case anyone... It's offended by that. If you're offended by it, I'm offended that they called it. I'm apologize in advance. But may, maybe they would have hooked us up. I doubt it, though. They were they were interesting. You know, you had to get your own water there and your own silverware and plates, and they would still sneak in an 18% gratuity on a buffet, But you know, maybe because we smoked the whole sushi set, section every time the online walked in. That's another story. But overall, I would not have been a benefactor of this NIL deal. deal. But... I'm super pumped. I think it's ridiculous for people to be feel some type of way or jealous. That, that's what I would say. People that are upset by this, I just feel like you're jealous about what other people can get. That's a ridiculous way to live. Uh, you're missing out on other opportunities. You're worried about what other people have, in my opinion. So, great news. NCAA, gotta, <laughs> it's been a ridiculous uh industry with rules and stuff that are ridiculous that we've had to abide by and 
now things are changing, and I like it. I mean, when I was at Humboldt, I got ineligible, and I'll tell you why. It was stupid, and it, you know, maybe it seemed like a little bit of job security. There's literally nothing going on up there, so the people upstairs needed something to do. Uh, what is? I can't remember their job. Their their, their job title. Compliance officer. Oh my gosh. So we did a phone a thon and we raised money. And if you raised X amount of money, you could get gear. And there was tiers to this thing. Like tier one, tier two, tier three, the more money you raised, the more gear you got as a result of it. Seems fair. Mm-mm. Not by the NCAA standards. That's, you know, you're receiving extra benefits. You know, you didn't earn those benefits because you didn't. You know, in my case, look, I got lucky. I called some uh, alumni and stuff that probably have a little, they're a little wealthier, and they gave me big donations. But anyways, I got that top tier, and I got a couple extra sweatshirts from everyone else. This is like in addition to your spirit pack. I got a green jacket, gold jacket, green jacket, who gives a shit? And because of all this, I was ineligible because... I don't know who had to tell compliance, and compliance saw this, and they were outraged, and there were seven of us, and I actually had to owe, pay the most money back. So I had all this gear that I was, like, giving to my family members. So when I got back to college after the break, all the gear was given away. And they were like, hey, do you have that gear? You have to return it or donate the value of that gear to a charity of your choice. And I was like, no, I don't have it. I got I got the green jacket. That's the only one I had left. And they go, well, we're going to give you the value. You got to come up with the donation. They came up with this freaking value. It was like $1,200. I don't know what the hell they thought was going on with this gear. It was, a lot of it was Adidas gear and other stuff was like Hanes with an Adidas logo on it. Because that's how we rolled at Humble State. And we were sponsored by Adidas, but we weren't sponsored by Adidas, meaning we had to buy our own cleats and our own gloves. And if we wore Nikes, our coach said we were going to lose our sponsorship, which what the hell sponsorship doesn't even provide you free stuff. Another story. So at the end of the day, I'm stuck with this $1,200 bill. No way of paying it back. No gear to get back except this stupid gold jacket. And... Even like while they were like getting things unraveled and stuff with the NCAA and compliance, I went upstairs to kind of get a heads up like, hey, maybe you help me get a job in the equipment room so I can start making some money to pay this back so I'm not ineligible in the fall. And they were like, what's your name again? And I'm like, holy crap, you're just as bad as the NCAA. Like, you're going to put us through all this and you don't even have the competence or even, you know, respect to know some of these players' names. So I was like, anyways, my name's Taylor. And... They messed that thing up before he was just called me Tyler. But it, it was stupid. I had to work a job. I used to sweep the basketball court a few times a day. You know, I'd get two hours a day, sanitize it. And then eventually I had to pay that money back to um, a charity, I believe. And I think they waived like half of it, if I recall correctly. So it ended up being like $600. I don't know, maybe they devalued the shirts a little bit. But... That's the kind of stuff that was going on. Like, people were getting eligible because their friend's father was paying their rent. Just stupid stuff. And now, you know, and with this completely professionalized sport in the NCAA, and let's be honest, this is completely professionalized. We're talking about high school football being professionalized now, let alone college. It's good to see that 
players can be benefactors even beyond just their free educations. And I use that term free loosely. It's just what it's called. But you earn that. You earn it. You know what I mean? There's talk about stigmas. They think everything is just given to the athlete. And I'm not trying to, you know, commiserate and be like, oh, we worked so hard. Well, we did at Humble State. But, uh, you know, when they – Alabama, they don't even take the test and they don't go to class and people do their work for them. I don't believe that's true. Man, <laughs> but that's the stigma. It's a lot of BS. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of hours. So that, that scholarship's earned. And around there, there's a lot of people making money. There's a head coach makes a going to make $100 million over a decade that said he would – he doesn't believe – Players should make money off their name, image, and likeness. I doubt he's changing his perspective. Or I'm, I'm quite sure he'll change his perspective now. But what he was uh, saying is that he'd rather coach, if he wanted to coach professionals, he'd coach high school football, which is easy to say when you're you're banking $10 million a year fully guaranteed. Uh, and if, if by a virtue and by a principle you just believe that the game – is best served and best played and best performed with the money not there, then there's a place for you. It's not the NCAA. It's high school football. If you if the, if the purity of the game is uh, essentially based on uh, players making money, go the high school is the spot for you. And unfortunately, you're going to take a big pay cut too. But you could work the same hours, and it's awesome. Instead of spending all that time recruiting. You could just spend that time developing the guys that you have and really putting your best foot forward with these young guys, making them making their dreams come to fruition instead of having to find their replacement every year. I mean, think about that. Just to act like they shouldn't get paid when this is completely a business. Like they're coming in, you know, they're signing over their next four to five years of their, you know, career with you or life with you, however you want to word it, and you're immediately finding their replacement. So <laughs> why shouldn't they kind of at least find out what's best for them uh, or do what's best for them or, or get a piece of the pie, so to speak? And I would say this to the players. Don't get so caught up in this brand crap. Uh, shoot your shot on Twitter. Do what you got to do. But at the end of the day, you're there to play football and go to school. You're a student athlete. Get your damn grades and work on your game. And I promise you the money you make, is a, the, the potential money you can make over a decade as a player is far greater than what you'll make as an athlete in college, unless you're like Tim Tebow. And that's that's a generational talent, right? <laughs> so focus on your game. Don't lose sight of that. Just because there's a – don't get that FOMO and start getting that same jealousy that people may get, worrying about this player is getting more. This Focus on your game. You can make a ton. You can make a ton. Even if you go to the practice squad in the NFL – you can leverage that so much more than your college jersey for the most part, maybe with the exception of like Alabama's and Michigan's and Notre Dame's. But you'll be able to leverage that NFL shield, uh, even on the practice squad, a ton. For the most part, greater than any uh, any way you leverage that logo at your school. And, I, and there's definitely exceptions. I say Notre Dame, you uh, you could be set for life if you played football there, especially if you started. Uh, but... Don't get so caught up in this crap. It's a cool opportunity. Shoot your shot on Twitter. But it, things don't change. Get your grades so you stay eligible, so you get your degree, and then go ball out in football. Develop your game. Focus on that. That's the money. That is where the money is. Before this whole social media stuff, that's what players did. 
They just focused on themselves. Like, I think Garza, Roberto Garza, he made $20 million with, with a torn ACL. He should have been out of the league, but he just focused on his game. There was no social media to focus on your brand. You just focused on your game. You focused on getting better. Coming, and he was coming from D2. That's why I mentioned him, because I'm biased towards D2, except for Humble State. They suck. Um, yeah. So that's where I'm at with Shakira. Shakari. I'm sorry. That was not, no. And NCAA. So I want to get into, I can't had a good conversation with a striking coach of mine, Coach C, Coach Christophus. Awesome guy. He is on my Instagram, Coach C. I think I got some videos uh, doing some fighting with him and Larry Warford. So he, I do his wrestling class and his Muay Thai and work with him at home. So the other day, we had, I went over to his house with a, and he's got a cool setup. It's just like how a Rocky movie would be. So if you're training, you know what I mean? It's just how you would envision yourself developing, you know, not all the fancy stuff, just that old school hard work. And I had a couple NFL linemen there doing striking. So he kind of sat down and told us his principles and his concepts. And he pretty much how he's not rooted in methods. It's just concepts and principles. And it was awesome because you could easily do this for O-line play or any other position. Just break it down quickly. His three principles or and things that he was rooted in was position, space, or distance, position, distance, and movement. That could be O line. Position, that's your stance, that's your posture. Uh, movement, that's your set, that's your closing space in the run game. And distance, that's the distance between you and the defender, the distance between you and the quarterback, distance between you and the ground. Same thing. And he's talking Muay Thai, he's talking striking. And it's the same. They're all principles and they all have similar traits. It's just once you get to the skill, that's the specificity. And another thing he said was that, and pretty cool guy, played D1 football, um, did wrestling, was a classically trained uh, Muay Thai fighter, and also worked in the Secret Service for 20 years. So he said as a fighter, he's looking for clutters. And he said in the Secret Service, he looked for those same clutters. The way he described clutters were, it's like if he's asking a guy a question and he notices every time he asks the question, he looks left. He goes, okay, it's no big deal. It's just what he does. But when he asks him a question maybe pertaining to something serious that could incriminate him, he sees a big movement. Well, that's like a you know him being like, oh, crap, something's about to go down. But prior to that, he's just looking for clutters. Like, oh, the, every time the guy talks, his eyes go left. No big deal. And then in fighting, it's the same thing. You go every time someone... Say they go to throw a punch, they drop their right hand. Uh, he's looking for those clutters, and you capitalize on those clutters. So that was interesting to me, and it sparked a lot of O-line stuff and football stuff in general. So and I, the way he was speaking, and when you meet like really good coaches, they speak in a way that no matter what your sport is or, your, or if you're strength and conditioning, you guys can find common ground. Because you're rooted in principles. You're rooted in physiology. You're rooted in physics, biology. What, you know what I mean? So you're rooted in just not BS. So one of the athletes, like he texts me like two days later after that day. Um, a McGregor, 
Conor McGregor, the fighter, he was talking about uh, when he fought Jose Aldo, that he right before he was saying it, he was saying, I noticed he drops his hand, blah, 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 blah. Well, they showed him talking about that. Then when the fight came, it shows him catching him, clipping him, knocking him out. Same thing, dropped his right hand, saw that opening in a minute, boom, gets him. He texts me that clip and goes, clutters. So that's awesome because it, it got through to him, right? So that just took me down some rabbit holes, and that's what I do. I get down rabbit holes, and I start rambling. That's, that's why I have this thing, so I can just ramble, because that way my wife won't leave me, so she doesn't have to hear me rambling. So when you think about defensive line, and you watch you know, these pass rush guys, when you watch his D-line summits, when you watch like uh, Joey Bosa talking about his two-hand swipe, when you, talk, when you look at Eric Donald talk about his moves, or when you get these sound bites of them teaching their moves, they're talking about O-line's clutters. They're seeing things that we do repeatedly, and they're capitalizing on it. And it doesn't matter. For the D-line, they don't care about, you know, obviously they'd love to get a sack every play. But, you know, that's not the reality of the game. But what they're doing over time, you know, hey, I notice he's doing this on first down, second down, third down, or I notice he does this on third down, or I notice he sets different when he doesn't have slide. I notice that he drops his hand before he throws. They're seeing these things. They're recognizing these clutters, and they're actually being trained to look for them. The, these vets are teaching these younger guys to look for them. These pass rush you know, experts are doing that. These D-line coaches are teaching these D-linemen to look for these clutters. And even if, you, you know, if you're just just got one move and you you only know that move off of this you know this type of clutter eventually they're going to find it and get it especially if that's all they're going for and they're being taught that and it, it, it shows up and it doesn't matter that it doesn't show up all game because what matters to twitter what matters to pff what matters to uh the fans and and ultimately what matters to your coach is that not the 59 reps, it's the 60th rep where you gave up the sack. It's the two-minute where you gave up the sack. It's that, uh, you know, that third and long, that crucial third down when you gave up the sack. In context, you know, it's a great game percentage-wise. You're, you're shutting them down. But once they, they're finding that clutter and they're just waiting to capitalize, and, and we know this to be true as offensive linemen, that's all that matters. They got that one sack. And if they do that every game, if they get that one sack on an offensive lineman based on exposing their clutters, they're going to be a millionaire. I mean, a multi-multi-millionaire. A, a sack a game? That's $20 million. Oh, my gosh. That's it. By exposing the clutter. And, and then some of them, you know, I get it. Not every D lineman is thinking like that, but the more and more, the more and more they keep teaching these things, the more connected people are. We got O line masterminds. You got pass rush master. I don't know what the pass rush one's called. You got DBU. You got uh, I think Ryan Clark's doing something. You got the tight end stuff. The more this information keeps getting passed, they're going to and, and you know you got like Chuck Smith out there. They're going to continue to capitalize on offensive line athletes clutter by recognizing it. So what do we do? I mean, is O line masterminds and stuff like that enough? I think it's a great start. What I here, broader picture, looking at some of the reason this is even a problem is that, well, if we just look at these two positions, okay, sure, D lineman, more athletic, more six packs, even just as big with six packs, um, 
they're just better. They're meaner. They're tougher. They move better. If they um, O line's the cerebral position, but D line, you know, if you're if you're not athletic enough at D line, just move to O line. It's no big deal. When you look at the root of this, though, why are they getting this clutter? It's because offensive line coaches, offensive line gurus, offensive linemen, offensive line athletes in general, we teach clutter. I mean, really think about this. We're teaching these patterns for them to recognize. How many times have you heard two kicks and, and a two-hand punch? Okay? I'm a, off, I'm a defensive lineman. Wow, literally, this guy just takes two kicks and a two-hand punch every time. Okay, good to know. Duly noted. Okay, cool. I'm Bosa. Awesome. I'm going to get this... This two-hand swipe, and he uses his wrist on the elbow. Go check it out on Instagram. And I'm going to get a two sacks this game based on this clutter that this offensive line athlete has been taught to do in the game. Now, think about that for a while. And I don't care. I, I've been in many systems, and I, I'd say I've had a couple coaches where, like, they were just adaptable to the athletes, which I got nothing but respect for because when you're, you know, a coach – you're asking an athlete to be adaptable, but you can't be adaptable yourself. You have a system that you live and die by, two kicks and a punch, or two kicks, high hand, low hand, or jump set, double under. I don't know, right? And I'm not calling anyone out because I have taught this clutter to younger athletes at O-line camps, to even, even in the professional world. I've taught the same clutter. I'll tell you what, I, I wanted everyone so tightly engaged, everything squeezed, get to your spot and grab them. Okay, well, why is that clutter? Like, you know, if I'm telling them to be tight, you don't want to give this up, you don't want to give it. Well, for starters, I'm, I'm, by asking the athlete to tighten all these things up, I'm asking him to inauthentically move. So when it comes to, for him to adapt and make decisions, when the shit hits the fan, it's going to be really difficult for him to do that because he's already starting inauthentically, Right? That clutter is going to show up. Oh, he just sit there, get to your spot, grab him. Interesting, this guy doesn't grab. Well, you know what I'm going to do? Maybe I'm a D lineman. I see this. I'm going to get real close to him and set up, you know, a double fake. Out, in, out. And he's going to bite on it. And since he doesn't use his hands and he just grabs, he's screwed. So I'm not putting myself above this. I'm not calling anyone out for something I haven't done as well. So... When it, when it sounds like if I'm bashing somebody because they teach two kicks and a two-hand strike. No, like in my personal evolution, looking at my own O-line play, I've had things where I just did what I thought was right, figured some stuff out, not overthought it, and then I've done things where I just lived and died by, you know, something that I believed at the time was a method or, or a principle, but maybe it was just a method. So, you know, I've, on the field, you know, not benefited from my own clutter that I've created, not benefited from my own clutter I was taught. And then I've also taught the clutter to guys. So I'm not I'm not calling anyone out. No one's above this. And even then, if that's how you feel, like I'm calling you out for teaching a certain method, I don't I can't judge your attention intentions. I'm not saying you're a bad person or a bad coach. This position is very just rooted in this robotic uh development and someone with the best intentions the best heart in the world could be teaching that so i'm not calling anyone out like a bad person 
But I'm saying this is something we need to start being aware of. And you can see where this D-line stuff is headed. These guys are freaks. There's a guy that's 255 pounds that is maybe the greatest player to ever play the game. That's Aaron Donald. I mean, could you imagine? This guy is 50, 60 pounds, 70 pounds lighter than the guys he's facing. And he's unblockable on run and pass, on double teams. It doesn't matter. The, the way this is going and the way they're approaching the game and the freedom they're given, you know, some of these guys are playing pass every down, first, second, third down. Think of Akeem Hicks. He's, he makes guards fall on their face all the time, first down. You, you have to be weary of what you're teaching. And you have to be, not only that, you got to be weary about what they're looking for. That's why, I mean, I, I, I'm really fixated on following all these, these D-line guys. And if I could find one of these, you know, pro bowlers showing their, what they're looking for, you study the hell out of that. Uh, one of the teams that just took me down some rabbit holes was the Washington football team. And they do like this cross chop to an underhook. So they almost do a wrestling move, mainly Allen. He's the best at it. He, does, he cross hooks with his – so if he's lined up on the left guard, he chops their hand with his right hand. And then as soon as he chops it, he brings it right under – for an underhook, like like you would see in wrestling, but instead of like trying to hump them, you know, like you see a lot of guys do a hump move, he he just puts his shoulder into them and drives them into the quarterback. He's not trying to create space; he's collapsing them into the quarterback, and he does a good job of it. And the most scary part about it is that his um, his chop hump move—I don't even want to call it that because hump—you start thinking they're humping them by. His chop underhook move, it looks ex- the setup for it looks exactly like his TE. So, what is he seeing? You know what I mean. That's what I'm like. What is he seeing? Well, as soon as that hand's thrown, he's chopping. You know what I mean. As soon as that that uh, elbow comes up, it's not tight enough. He's coming underneath. And I've seen guys adapt in interesting ways. I've seen a guy suplex him, but I think it was a hold and a sack. Uh, I thought Larry Warford played him well, and that's biased. You call me biased, but whatever. I, I'll, I'll refer to Larry Warford all the time, friend or not. But when I'm looking at these, when I'm when I'm watching this stuff, it it's really changing my mindset on on creating robots and, and being aware of if what I'm teaching is making you robotic and setting someone up to fail. Because what you want to do is you want competent guys out there that are able to adapt and make decisions. And, you know, if they recognize, hey, he's chopping me, what do I do now? Well, I'm doing exactly what I was told. I'm two kicks and a strike, and he keeps chopping my hand and humping me, and he's throwing me in the quarterback's lap. Well, what are we mad about? He's doing what he's, doing what he's taught, right? I remember, I'll tell a story, which I do all day. I think I've been doing it the last half hour. When I was on the Cardinals in the preseason, there was this big dude from Clemson. And he probably he didn't start the game. He probably came in he, after the first quarter. Starters came out. Mikey Potty came out. He goes in at left guard. And on film, I'm talking lights out. And I won't call out the coach that he was worked with prior, but he coached. And, he was, and he's a good coach and a good dude, by the way. But he coached if someone's tight and you're a guard, it's one kick and throw both hands. If they're loose, it's one kick. It's one and a half kicks is how he explained it. Throw both hands 
And if he's like a four eye, it's two kicks, throw both hands. And then the same, you know what I mean? So it was very robotic. It was clutters. And eventually a D lineman will figure this out. Well, he's he was a second stringer, and he was going against a second stringer. So it didn't take Aaron Donald to figure this out. It took a guy trying to make the 53 that realized this. So second quarter, and the Cardinals, we just lined up an empty. It was Bruce Arians' offense pre-Brady. So we line up an empty and pass. And for second whole second quarter, he probably had 12 reps. Lockdown on the line of scrimmage. One kick, two-hand punch. Guy's not moving. Balling, right? They're not running no games. They're just running straight rushes. Preseason. Balling. Look like one-on-ones, and you're like, dang, this dude, like this is Mikey Potty's backup? I don't know. Second quarter, or third quarter. So he came in second quarter. Third quarter, same thing. Lights out. Fourth quarter. And I'll never forget this. In the film room, he did the same thing he did that he was getting praised for in second and third quarter. Fourth quarter is doing the same thing, and it doesn't work. And the coach goes just like this. The O-line coach goes, hey, such and such, not calling him out. Good, good dude, good player. He goes, I gave you 10 minuses in a row. 10. Think, think that through. Let's say he got 15 plays a quarter, 45, and he got 10 minuses in a row doing exactly what he did the first and second quarter when he was lights out, looked like damn Larry Allen out there. And when I'm thinking of this now, after this week, and I went back and watched the preseason game on the All-22 coaches copy, and it is exactly what happened. And I don't want to put the player on blast. You just have to take my word for it. He took two kick, or he took a kick, threw his hands, swiped. Took a kick, threw his hands, swiped outside. Two plays in a row. Third play. This is first down, second down, third down. Two plays, takes a kick, lunge, swipes, comes inside, beat. Tries to trip him, gets a, I think the whole, it was a flag. I, was listen, I wasn't listening, but he got a flag for trying to trip him. Three in a row. And over the course of the fourth quarter, got 10 minuses. So think about that. You go 30, and I, and I mean, he was balling second and third quarter. You go 30 plays, lights out, right? And then you get 10 negatives. I mean, that's a fail grade, I, I believe. And, and it, like the way it works in the NFL, they'll be like anything under 80 is fail. And uh, maybe the grading is subjective most of the time but I mean it's hard to recover he and he didn't make the team and he was a good player and he was doing exactly what he did that found him success and a backup D lineman recognized that clutter that he's going against for two quarters and I, and I mean let's just say that's completely fooled by randomness let's say that it was more mixed up offense and it was more runs and passes and stuff it wouldn't have got noticed but the fact that it was empty one kick, both hands. That D lineman picked up on it. And like I'm saying, it wasn't the D lineman that we talk about in the Pro Bowl. And when I looked him up, he was on the practice squad that year, and that was it. He did not make the team um, that year. The next year he did practice squad and active on the same team. So I'm not talking about that dude, but he, he you know, a good player. You're in the NFL, you're a good player. I don't care. You did something good to get there. But it wasn't that dude that even picked up on it. I'll tell you what, he wasn't at these D-line summits where they're actually talking about it. He wasn't training with Chuck Smith where he's teaching these clutters. I'm just saying that just to be aware of the implications of ultimately that rigidity that I have to have control. This is the way I coach it. If you can't do it this way, 
see you next. The cream rises to the top, right? That That's the mindset. But if we really want to make this position, if we really want to see this position, you know, just rise up, get better, we have to start looking at it differently. And, I mean, if when I what I said when we were talking about that uh, at Coach C's house, when he was talking about the clutters, I was like, yeah, you know, it's kind of unfortunate because the O-line, we – approach the game like robots and the D linemen, especially these days are approaching the game. Like you're talking about, they're approaching it like looking for clutters so they could get that sack in the two minute in the third quarter, or I mean in the second, uh, right before half or in the fourth quarter. So they could get their $20 million a year care about the rest of those plays. Right. I mean, granted, like Aaron Donald balls out every play, but I mean, if you could just, not mess up and then make a big play once a game, you're going to get paid, especially if it's a crucial moment. So we need to be aware of these clutters. And then perfect timing. We, uh, in, in school right now, we're going over some family therapy. and fam- Like family therapy is great because it's, it really mimics O-line room and then the complexity of an O-line room. And that's how I make sense of things. So if someone's going through some family issues – and all I'm able to do is uh, improve their pass set, you know, clearly I should just stick to coaching instead of, uh, but that's how I make sense of all this is making the counseling into O-line. So we're going over some of these theories that use cybernetics, and if I'm understanding correctly, cybernetics was used for uh, robotics and biological systems and stuff like that, but when they use it in a family setting, they're looking at it as like feedback loops. And this hit right home with me. So when you have the feedback loops, you got negative and positive feedback loops. And it kind of gets a little tricky. So negative feedback loops is when chaos is uh, introduced to a system or a stimulus is introduced to a system. But that system is so cohesive, they're able to maintain homeostasis. So like a maybe like a stupid example would be at your house. You've got this thermostat set for 69 degrees. And there's a heat wave because you're in freaking Phoenix, Arizona, and it's 120. And it makes the house go to 70 degrees. Well, the thermostat, and I don't know how this crap works, but the thermostat tells the AC to turn on. AC turns on. It goes back down to 69 degrees. So that stimulus, that heat, didn't change the homeostasis of the room. It stayed 69 degrees. And that's key. So that is the negative feedback loop, right? So negative feedback loop meaning the stimulus did nothing. But then there's the positive feedback loop, and this is O-line. And if you played, you coached, you know this. You've experienced this. You've experienced the positive. You've experienced both, but the positive feedback loop will punch you in the stomach. So positive feedback loop is when the stimulus is introduced and the cohesion that exists in the system is dysfunctional. So the, And that dysfunction allows for to either build problems or maintain or continue to maintain problems so if we go to the thermostat 69 degrees set at 69 degrees 120 outside goes up to 70 degrees thermostat doesn't work right so that and all of a sudden now 69 turns into 90 degrees inside the house you weren't able to maintain homeostasis so with some heat i don't know this is a stupid example but the cohesion with the thermostat and ac unit was not up to par which created a problem and eventually maintained a problem. In a family setting, 
It's like, hey, a a kid hits puberty, he starts having behavioral issues. The family is cohesive enough; they know how to handle it. Or that that'd be the negative feedback loop. Or kid hits puberty, becomes a dick, has behavioral issues, and all hell breaks loose. The parental hierarchy breaks. You know, the parents and uh, one parent becomes a friend. So the father and son have a coalition against the mother. And all hell breaks loose. The system is screwed. And you got to go to therapy to get help. Think about this from O-Line. Both have happened to anyone that's ever put their hand in the dirt. Or if you're, if you're a two-point stance nowadays, unfortunate. If you've only done two-point. Anyone that's ever had two cleats in the dirt. They know this. You've had a negative feedback loop. You've gone against a guy. Um, swipes outside hands. He swipes your outside hand, gave you a sack. It doesn't get to you. you the next game you you play, that's your game. You throw outside hand, and it works. It, you, you didn't let him change you, right? But then there's the other guys, and I've witnessed this. I've experienced this firsthand. I've witnessed this. I have good stories about it. Just going down this rabbit hole of cybernetics. You got a guy. Gets his hand swiped, freaks out a little. Goes, oh, I'm not going to throw my hands now. I'm not going to use them. I'm going to keep my hands to myself because I don't like getting swiped. And they just take their set. Now they're getting bull rushed. And why? Oh, well, they're not using their hands at all. They're just relying on recoverability. Maybe they weren't the best at recoverability. And now they're so freaked out because they're afraid to get edged. They're afraid to get bull rushed. You've, now you got a robot. And now you have a guy with it's has a problem and he's maintaining that problem that's the positive feedback loop and we you everyone's seen that and if you're coaching and you, you you have to be able to look past just this guy's not listening this guy's not coachable there's more to it we're complex we're nuanced there's so much going on in an athlete's head there's so much going on in their body their physiology there's so much feedback. There's so that's why it's called feedback. There's so much noise that this kind of give you some insight into it. Hey, they had a positive feedback loop. They are now a robot. They're not adapting. They're not making decisions, and they're screwed. And I don't want to leave them. You know what I mean? I don't want to screw them over. So you got to start if, being mindful of it. As an athlete, if this is happening to you, you're still playing. You got to be mindful of these these positive feedback loops that are. In, impacting your play i i remember it, it, i'm saying like ultimately a, a coach or a mentor can only make it they, they get the power to make it better but they also have the power to make it worse by you know doubling down on what's freaking them out i remember we had um a backup he got the start i won't say what team because i feel like you could search anything now i don't want to put anyone on blast so he became a starting tackle uh right tackle and it was a pass-heavy team, like most of the NFL. And he's he was having some t trouble. Once you go from the second string, facing the second string, it's a next level when you go to the starters. They're better every time, right? You know, so it's it's more difficult, and there's more pressure to you know find cohesion with the starting old line. So it's some growing pains. Well, he was going out there. Versus a really good defensive end. He had 10 sacks that year. And this is practice now. He's the starter in practice. And he's getting his hands swiped. Just mean. And to the point where he just stopped throwing them. Well, that didn't matter. So now he stopped throwing them. And the 
guy, the, this DN was smaller. He just started ripping underneath him, turning the corner, and then getting pressures. This is all in practice. And it, and we were all talking about, like, what our least favorite plays was. And I was like, mine was like screens. You know, everyone had their least favorite play. And uh, he was like, man, can I tell you my least favorite play? And the guy looked traumatized. He was broken. And we're like, yeah, by all means, do so. And he goes, any play, that's a pass. I freak out and I freeze. And this is in the National Freaking Football League where this happened. And I go, why? And he goes, because I just know I'm about to get cussed out. And so to that point of doubling down on these positive feedback loops, and he was right. Every time he got cussed out, every rep in practice, every rep in the game, he would just get cussed out until he got hurt that year and he looked like a new person. He was completely relieved. But he had a positive feedback loop. Now, here was the catalyst. He's now a starter. He's, he's stressed to find cohesion with that starting group. He's now going against starting D linemen, so it's another level. The starters are better. A guy with 10 sacks, he gets his hand swiped. He's freaked out now. He's worried about what everyone's thinking about him. He's worried about that he's, you know, the O-line, the starting O-line is going to be mad at him. Stops throwing his hands, and that only makes matters worse. And then when he gets to the room, and I swear I could hear this in my head, that O-line coach would just repeat, I don't understand why you won't just throw your damn hands. Every play. Next play. Throw your damn hands. What are you doing? Every play was a reference to throwing your hands. And I'm like, gosh, this is getting old. We just took 50 reps in practice. We're going to have to hear this all 50 reps. Like, and it was just hammering it in. And sadly, in the game, he, the same thing happened. He wasn't doing it. And, and, and I don't want to be like, oh, I was through my hands. No, no, no. When I moved to guard, same thing. I, you know, center, I used my hands. At guard, I would use my hands. Man, they get swiped because I, you know, I was trying to understand spacing, and I'd stop throwing them. So no, I dealt with all this. I'm not above anything. I'm not Olin Crudes or Larry Allen. Okay, I'm just me. I'm not calling when I'm just sharing. And I remember the, he finally used his hands in this rep, and he ended up hurting his shoulder. It was his best set. And this is a good player. This is a guy that would have been a good starter at the very least. He's a really good backup, and. This, if we're looking at this from a cybernetic standpoint, he had a positive feedback loop. And then when we look at the whole system, he didn't have a coach in place that was like aware enough of what was happening. Not bad intention. This is just what he did. You know what I mean? He probably loved them. But this is just what he did as a coach. He didn't have the awareness to, to help him overcome this positive feedback loop. He actually enhance it he actually just became part of the system that was messing him up so that's my rant today that's my rambling outside of the weed outside of the nil which i just learned what that stood for is these clutters and in that feedback loop so when we if we're really being serious about elevating this position which i mean o-line twitter is a beast i love o-line twitter i love the coaches on there Hog football chat, all these guys. This is something we have to take into account. We got to watch our enemies, the D line. They're looking for clutter. We got to approach this a little bit how they approach it. It's got to be less about control. You know, like even I've changed my stance. I've been 
work with some young young kids uh, because you know I, I do uh, martial art, jiu-jitsu, and Muay Thai with their parents, with their dad. So I've been working with some young guys, and I've just changed my whole view of this. I'm like, hey, I got to teach them some basics. This is how you move. Let them take a rep or give them a rep. Let them get jacked up. Let them know it's okay to fail and then go from there. But they got to get jacked up first, and that's unfortunate. You know what I mean? I wish this game was just like all, what do they say, all rainbows and butterflies. It's not. You know, it's like that Bruce Lee thing. Practice 10,000 kicks. Okay, well, if you practice 10,000 kicks against a bag, I'm not afraid of you. And I love Bruce Lee. But if you practice 10,000 kicks in 10,000 different situations versus 10,000 opponents or versus opponents, it's completely different. You know, so I'm not about this control. You got to let O-linemen adapt. And I keep reiterating this. Adapt, you know, make sense. Bring bring what they their perception of reality back to uh, – Get them on the same level. Make better decisions, you know. But if we're just something else to kind of be aware, add to our arsenal, is don't teach these clutters. You can call it whatever you want, patterns. It just so happens that Coach Christophus, Coach C, called it clutter, so that's what's fresh on my mind. And when these D linemen are approaching this shit like fighters and we're approaching it like robots, that's why things look like that. That's why we get mad at Chris Collinsworth because – even though he's disregarding 50 plays and in highlighting this one play, and he's been struggling all night. Get out of here. Well, if we want to shut that guy up, we got to start looking at this, like how they're, how D linemen are preparing for it. You know, it can't just be this rigid thought process, uh, my way or the highway, two kicks and throw your hands and then be, and, and love it when it works and then be mad at the player when it doesn't. Players be aware of that. You're just a player, player. You got to look at, you got to look at what these D linemen are doing, and I think film study on these uh, these one on one matchups. It doesn't need to be a stuff tape, you know, where we're just watching these guys dominate people. But you got to be aware of what they're doing, you know. And I watched Larry Warford break down film when he's watching his hands versus Cam Jordan. Cam Jordan's out there like a ninja in practice, you know. Outside, inside hand to Larry's outside hand, outside hand to his inside hand, tight swim, turn the court, just crazy stuff. And Larry's, you know, finding ways to counter these things, you know. And this is just for practice. And I, that, that, I love that. That was the ultimate pro. It was like a chess game for him. But just be aware of these clutters. I'm sorry for rambling. Unless you keep coming back, then I appreciate it. Give me a like. Give me a five-star review. Share this thing. Uh, if you like it, if you don't, let me know if you got any questions. Send them my way. DMs. I got two. I don't know if I addressed them. And all that rambling, something had to have been addressed, right? Anyways, episode three, I'll catch you. Or, yeah, episode three, I'll catch you next week. Handle the Line Podcast. Thank you.